From the Clock Tower of Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we continue the journey of Christian conversion. In this episode, we cover Book 2 of Till We Have Faces, comprising chapters 1 through 4. And as always, spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point, this is Till We Have Faces, so go read and then come and join us, or just listen. Yeah, but read it, for real. But do read it. <laughs> Housekeeping, Alex. Yeah. Anything we need to hit on? Well, this is it. This is kind of like, as far as our mission, this is what we're trying, we were trying to get to. Not only this book, Till We Have Faces, but we're covering book two, which is this crescendo of the magnum opus of C.S. Lewis's work. And... Uh, we're not going to do it justice. In fact, right now I'm confronted with the irony of trying to engage with this discussion and conversation and hopefully not too analytical and pick a party, <laughs> pick a party. I'll take that part pick a party. Um, <laughs> way of talking about this book because I feel like he does such a good job of hiding what could be analyzed in this book. Not that you can't analyze it, but every single sentence of this book has meaning. And it's not just some line to keep the story flowing. And I'm glad that it kind of is hidden because I've, I don't know, especially this last, these last four chapters where, uh, I got to the beauty and the biscuit tin again. So it was a special, it was a special read and listen. Why is the beauty in the biscuit tin? Is well, that... that's, that's a, <laughs> so to ju just, uh, we've talked about it a little before, or I have, uh, when C.S. Lewis was a boy, this is kind of like his real life experience that we see in Pilgrim's Regress of his vision of the island hmm. of sweet desire. And his brother Warney had, put together in a biscuit tin, kind of just this miniature fairy garden sort of arrangement of moss and other things to, to look kind of like a the beauty of nature and a garden in this tiny biscuit tin. And when Lewis, as a little boy, saw it, he it was like the fir his first experience, at least in his memory, of seeing beauty and being almost overwhelmed by it. And while he watched it, its beauty kind of disappeared and every, all the elements were still there, but he caught this fleeting sensation of what he would later term joy, almost this unattainable, but not attain unattainable because if there's no destination, then you can never journey hopefully. Right? So it's not that it's unattainable, but maybe our life is the, pursuit of this longing for something beyond what life has to offer. And so I think dealing with seeing our life as something lesser to what reality is might seem pessimistic from certain points of view, but it's the most hopeful belief I think a human can have. And that's, that's that joy. So I feel, I felt a lot of that in this last uh, this last reading. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I think it, Alex, uh, how many times have you read this book now? Oh, well, I mean, a few. It's, yeah, double digits, I'd say. Yeah. And so my experience coming at it the first time, I probably am more similar to at least some of our audience who's maybe reading the book for the first time, is I experienced some of that feeling of. I want to really squeeze the juice out of this and get all of the meaning, like everything C.S. Lewis is trying to serve up for me. But I don't think I'm quite ready, maybe. And it's still some of it's hidden. And I know I'm going to have to go back and reread some parts of this book, maybe want to go back and reread other Lewis books that we've already covered and then come back again. Yeah. Um, 
I listen to this one on Audible. Next time through, I want to read the book. I think that'll help me go through the lines a little bit better. I know I'm saying I want to get more analytical, but I kind of do. So um, anyways, both of us, different experiences, but um, very excited to cover it this morning. Yeah, I think it is important to read the book because there's moments where it's like, I mean, I get caught up maybe in the contemplation a little too much. Um, but, you know, contemplation, seeing her as one of the daughters uh, in the Pilgrim's Regress, you can go on these contemplative journeys. I think that's an important part. It's not that there's that enjoyment's good and contemplation bad. They each have their place. And if you want to, to get contemplative, I think it's probably better so you can read and stop reading. So many times when I was listening, I did the thing where you're listening. And I know some people can do this reading, but I'm dyslexic, so I don't have this ability to like read without thinking about it. But when I'm listening and I start thinking about something that's hit me really profoundly, and then I kind of snap you're out of it. Two minutes later. Yeah, or two yeah. minutes or even chapters <laughs> later. Um, so I, I do think... Um, I'd say do both <laughs> read, read it. Also listen to it. The audible version with, uh, that's read by Wanda McCadden. It, she's so good. And it's so easy to kind to feel, I, I think the emotionality in it. And I, it, it's almost like you forget that somebody's reading in the same way that Lewis disappears in this book. And that's what I worry about is I think Lewis wanted to disappear. He wanted to get us to experience something. And the more I think about Lewis writing this book and the more I think about the experience that I'm having and the, an the analysis of this one phrase and how it relates to that one, that other book. And Lewis does disappear in this book. Doesn't he? I'm just, Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Remember somebody wrote it. This wasn't just an emotional experience. Jeez. You kind of have to remember that because it's so, it's, it's so transparent, I think, to the mythology and to what we're trying to feel through this. Anyway, I'm yeah. gushing. Yeah. With that preamble, let's jump into the <laughs> summary and hit the chapter. The writing of her complaint begins a process of transformation for Orwell. She sees elements of her narrative through the perspectives of other people and through a succession of dreams and visions is able to make her complaint in her real voice. Hearing herself truthfully is the answer for why holy places are dark places. She now writes to recant her perjury. For themes today, you have a note about ugliness. Yes. There's that... Um, the dream, I think it's interesting, her dreams become less dreams and more vision mm -hmm. as she comes closer to death. And you can almost see like a sundowning type process um, when she's going over to the where the rams are, which is kind of like, you know, oh, here I go, analysis, getting on the bus. To Just, go do to Just do it. Just do it. I'm here for it. Getting on the bus, right, to, from the gray town to go. Anyway, she crosses the river. <laughs> May as well be called the River Styx, right? And she wades in and is in the mud with her feet, and then her feet leave the mud. She has to go all the way under. She's dying, right? And, and this whole part of the book is kind of like that process of her going into the river. And as she becomes more aware of what death is, this supreme evil, and also, ironically, possibly the supreme good. And she gets deeper and deeper into the mud to the point where her feet leave. Um, it, it starts off as dreams, and then less of a dream where she doesn't really know, but it's a type of dream where um, she like opens the door into this place and then her last dream is well she, she, she says, says it's not a dream it's a, it vision. a vision and so it's becoming more and more the boundary of her consciousness is becoming more um permeable more grayscale more of this transitional liminal space 
porous. Porous. Thank you. Thank you. Porous was actually the word I was I was thinking of. Um, words, words, babble, right? Clear as water. <laughs> you fed us on words. Anyway. Ugliness. Ugliness. She sees herself in the pillar room and digging down deeper and deeper in this digging process, this trying to get rid of her ugliness almost. It's like Eustace taking off the dragon skin. And she sees in the mirror with her dad there, who's kind of been the source of all the criticism that we don't know if she really is as ugly as she says. She probably is. I don't think there's any reason for that because for, for her not to be. Because this trans- transition to become psyche is this beautification of unget and seeing this ugliness in herself and the comparison of the ugliness with the way that the gods are worshipped, especially unget in the darkness. And she's this rock that's covered in blood and so almost oozingly bulbous that it has a thousand faces like like a flame changing its shape you can your your vision almost able to project on it and the she face even you want to re- see she relates it to bata who she had hung right <laughs> well this and who was uh, you know a lot of things that she detested yeah some somebody that kind of represents what lewis would call the infernal venus that aspect of the soul which is most affected by material. I'm glad you brought this up as a theme because as I read this, the as you read book two and you start to see this comparison, and I mean, book two ends with the God saying, and I don't want to get too specific and we'll get there, but you are psyche. Um, I don't feel like I, I total, totally grasped what this comparison is because she 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 talks about just as the, just as there's physical beauty that maybe her goal is supposed to be spiritual beauty and that the gods can only love us or desire us if we are beautiful to them spiritually and so then she's trying and she, you know she says she wakes up with this resolve and then 30 minutes later she's in a rage or doing whatever and and obviously i think we all relate to that type of ugliness in our own spirits even though we might have the best of intentions so it'll be interesting to see uh i'm excited to hear your perspective on how ugliness kind of weaves itself through these chapters okay well let's take a break and when we get back we'll jump in okay Welcome back. Diving in. Diving into book two. Um, so she has decided, she's picked up the pen again. I actually loved this just from a uh, literary device, I guess, that you read the whole book one and you kind of are assuming that is going to be the book. And she says, no, you know, no one's seen my face since that day when she's with the fox. And I kind of assumed no one would see her face till the end of the book. And then you get this book two and this new perspective she's coming at. So I I love that just from the way that it separates the two books and gives you these two different perspectives, which maybe Lewis kind of popped his face out right there because that nice move, (laughs) writer. Well, just as a matter matter of history for understanding Lewis, he had started this story or the retelling of this myth when he was an atheist. And he had written something, I think, in poet, more poetic form, um, but that is basically the book one. And so as he went through this conversion and this change and this transition from atheism to theism to Christianity, he writes that into this experience with Orwell as well. And if we are on this journey of conversion, of Christian conversion, like we say at the beginning of every episode in this this season, this right here is that, that change, the transition from book one to book two is an important transition of, I mean, 
that's what I hope we're doing here is okay. kind of jumping. This is really powerful for me then. So with book one, he started writing this as an atheist. You mentioned earlier on that this is autobiographical for him. Yeah, well, yes. Or at I, least when he wrote Orwall and his his complaint against the gods. Like, hey, if I think of uh, an atheist perspective, usually you become atheist because you're kind of mad about how God's decided to run things. Yeah. And so you're kind of sticking it to him and saying, you must not exist if you're really going to run things so poorly. Yes. Right? And that's Orwell. That's right. And and whether or not this is autobiographical, he does. he has said in one of his essays, I can't remember which, but he does say that it's kind of lazy literary analysis to say that everything that somebody writes is autobiographical. And he says, in a way, of course that's true because you can only write from your own experience. And so in that way, I'd say, yes, this is autobiographical because he's drawing from what he knows, from what he's experienced. But this is, in a way, I would say, sure, autobiographical for him, but may just as biographical for me. I don't think we're allowed to say biographical for the rest of the podcast, but that's true. <laughs> Start sounding weird. <laughs> um, uh, all right, so so this we've been talking high level, uh, jumping in. So she says she doesn't want to die perjured. She's now had these experiences, and she feels like I have to now write the truth yeah. because she realizes book one was not the truth. Um, and then she starts walking us through the story. So the first one is she meets the eunuch Taryn, yeah, and he helps her see. Redival, who in most ways has just been cast aside as this frivolous, silly, vain, vain sister who you you really felt no love for in book one. And it was hard for me as the reader to feel any love for her, um, that she was lonely and that yeah. there was a time when they were f- best friends as little kids and that Orwell kind of abandoned her once once she had the fox and, and found that love with the fox. And it's the first first uh, piece of the story that starts her maybe thinking outside of her own perspective and realizing that there was someone else who was having a lived experience outside of her own. Yeah. That process of the, the cognitive empathy where you start to intentionally, and it doesn't happen naturally. I think a lot of us think that it happens naturally, but you have to work at it to try to see from somebody else's perspective mirrored emotions aren't exactly seeing somebody else's perspective and by doing that she realizes i think it's the beginning of realizing that reality is bigger than her reality and we saw her story you could imagine a book one written from redival's perspective and it would have just as much justification to call orwell out for her silliness as she had to call Redival out. I thought it was ironic that while she's engrossed in writing book one, her the person who she probably has has loved the most, Bardia, is sick and dying, which yeah. she doesn't realize because she's so engrossed in telling her story. Yes. I think that's intentional. Yeah. And also people can't tell her the truth because of what she might do or what the relationship she has with Bardia might do to him. Because as Arnom says that Bardia would put his own health aside and try to jump right back into this position of, of work because he's the most loyal of all her subjects and that would definitely kill him. Yeah. So people are kind of guarding the way that they approach Orwell because she is Ungit. It seems like she takes and never gives back. And uh, she might think she does because she thinks she's a martyr, right? Like she's saved Bardia's life in battle. And for her, she thinks that that means that she's paid the price to kind of own him a little bit. She married off Redival to a prince who she didn't think was she was worthy of. Right. So, so she, magnanimous. Yeah, she's doing all of the, what's the line from Screwtape Letters? You can tell who she lives for by the haunted faces. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're haunted faces or haunted expressions. Um, yeah, so I think she's only becoming aware of this now 
she wasn't, uh, she says that it's the first time she ever thought of Redival's position. And then she has this interaction with Ansett, who is Bardia's wife. And Ansett, I think, is justifiably a little, I, I don't know, doesn't like Orwell. Peeved. Yeah, a little peeved. <laughs> a little upset. I think she rightly identifies Orwell as taking the best years and even Bardia's life with the how he she worked him. Yeah. She was left with the dregs. Yeah. And you get this this interesting interplay of the of two different types of love that you can learn about in the four loves, Ophelia and Eros. And that Orwell actually is in love with Bardia. But because of who she is and what she thinks about herself and her ugliness can never really and Bardia's married. And so even though she probably would have that authority to some extent, you know, she's actually, Orwell's a good person. There's this love triangle where Ansett has this love of Eros with Bardia. And Bardia has this love of Philia, this brotherly love with Orwell. He even says in the first book that it's too bad Orwell was a, was born a woman. The closest thing to a love speech she'd ever heard. Yeah. Yeah. But it hurt her because she wanted more. She wanted something else. And um, but Ansett can be upset that she never got that friendship type love with Bardia because that was all taken up by Orwell. And so you have the this idea of these people. Well, Lewis says that Philia is the love of two people who are looking in the same direction, hmm. who have this shared purpose, brothers in arms kind of thing. The C.S. Lewis book club. That's right. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, we're creating this little community of philia here. Hopefully that's, that's a large part of the goal. And what Eros is, is two people looking at each other. Hmm. And anyway, this love triangle situation, and she doesn't realize, or she maybe now only realizes in this moment that the person she really could have had the philia with is Ansett. They both loved the same man. They had more in common than they had different. And I think that's true. It's it's tricky to talk about loves this way because I think we're so... I think we're so clumsy in talking about love because what it is and what we want it to be and how we want to justify our own selfish behaviors and call it love all gets muddled in the way that we try to communicate with each other. And even the way we talk with ourselves, you see this moment where, where Orwell accuses Ansett of being jealous of her and she takes off her veil and says, jealous of this, pointing to her face, thinking that she's making a point that because she's ugly, she could never have the love that Ansett has, and she wants the pity from her. But she's crying, and Ansett sees in that moment that Orwell loved Bardia too. And she compares that to the to the battlefield when she meets a man where they, they're about to come and try and fight to the death, and the wind blows, and it blows their capes around them, and they laugh. And they have a moment where they just share this shared feeling. Um, and then they go back to the battle and the same, they have this moment where they both just kind of mourn the man that they both love together. And then they go back to being enemies afterwards. Yeah. It was this inv invitation to Philia that Orwell wasn't quite ready for. Yeah. I think. Hmm. And so to see her take off, remove that mask, remove that veil, from her face and for that to be the way that she can finally communicate love to somebody else, I think is so profound. There's an experience I had that kind of is a formative background experience of my entire life. And it happened on a day in a philosophy class in college and the teacher now, this is all from my perspective, so I can't give you the objective truth of what happened, but I know from my immature college mind, the way that I experienced it, very Orwell-like. The teacher was talking about getting past our defensive walls in our communications with people, breaking down these guarded ways that we present ourselves to each other. And... I'm not sure how much instruction we got to 
do this, what I think is a kind of an impossible task, but he asked for volunteers if they'd want to come up and have a conversation with him with walls removed. And I involve, I like this, you know, I don't know if you can imagine what type of student I was, you're probably right. Um, <laughs> you know, I raised my hand to volunteer, like I'm going to go up there and prove <laughs> ego inflated how I can remove these walls but the ego is a wall and I get up there and I try to have this conversation walls removed employing these tactics that I've been learning in the class and kind of flexing flexing as a wall for the rest of the class that I understood the assignment and I'm not sure if the professor was frustrated with me it felt like that because I was failing miserably or maybe I just played right into exactly what his program was. I don't know because I was so embarrassed by the whole process of not being able to put down my walls that I went down and I'm sure I grumbled this mistreatment and un the unfairness of thinking I understood something and not being able to use it to my own aggrandizement. And I still don't know how to do that. I still don't know how to put down the walls. I still don't know how to engage with somebody in a way that's not guarded, that's totally vulnerable. I don't even know if I should. I don't know if we're worthy of that from each other. But you can see why somebody who's self-conscious and this putting on a mask is not your true self. And you can't talk with your th true voice if you're wearing a veil. And the gods can't do that with us either, but maybe for the opposite reason. The veil that they put on is really a veil for us. And I'm being made aware right now that that's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to, I'm trying to portray this experience in a way that aren't you impressed? Aren't you impressed by me? Super. Right? <laughs> I'm always impressed. You're my friend. <laughs> so, but see, like the truth, the truth, the unveiled me is just, is, is ugliness is something that I have reason to be embarrassed about. And we have shame that we're hiding from each other in that nakedness. It's gonna, It's like we've got dragon scales on us to protect us from each other. In Paralandra, C.S. Lewis even says that's the reason that we wear clothes is to protect us from each other's greed. And that greed and that embarrassment and the recognition of our own ugliness is like, I don't know, that's life. That's what, that's what our relationships are. And it's just kind of funny, you know, even the face of somebody crying is like this ugly face. And it's, it's moments like that, that I actually think are the most true about us. Even if just an analogy for the way our mortality is in our relationship with God or the relationship that he wants with us and how guarded I am, all that keeps me from that communion is myself. I loved that this conversation with Ansett opens Orwell's eyes to, starts to open her eyes to how there might be some similarities to Ungit and herself. And she will see that more, we'll, see, we'll get that more when she's in the temple. But she sees that Bardia had worn out his life in in her service. Yeah. And I love when she she asks Ansett, well, why didn't you ever tell me? If you'd have told me that when he got home, he was so tired and he'd been giving too much and he was going to die younger because of this, I would have stopped. I would have yeah. released him. And, and Ansett says, and make him more mine and make him only mine instead of his own person yeah. and stop him from becoming who he became as this great man who served in this great kingdom. Um, and she says to Orwell, it, it, you're making me feel like you don't understand what love is. Yeah. And this, this is one of Orwell's chief complaints against Ungit and the gods is that they ask for these sacrifices and they ask for these things, but they don't, but they don't give us enough clarity. It's too dark. They don't give us enough. Uh, we can't see them. And 
And also it reminds us, and I think it reminds her of her love for Psyche or purported love for Psyche, um, which she hasn't realized yet is not real charity. But Ansett here is is teaching us about charity. And this is something, I mean, I told Alex before we started recording that as we've read the Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce and all of these other works leading up to this, it's something that is really, I've taken home personally and in my marriage, I, I want to grow up into this real charity in my relationship with my wife. Yeah. And cast aside kind of the cheaper things that <laughs> we get into marriage with and and focus on this, even at Ansett's detriment and, and her mourning that she doesn't get the best of her husband on, on most days. Her charity for her husband wasn't going to put her, even if she could lift her little finger to stop it, she wouldn't do it. Yeah, isn't that such a great lesson for Orwell to <laughs> learn? right at this moment, what love looks like. Yeah. And later on in her dream or vision, she realizes that her love for Bardia stank when it was pulled up to the precipices of real truth. That when confronted with real truth, that she she makes a comment about how love like that can be nine-tenths hatred. Exactly. Which is terrifying. (laughs) Right. And Ansett showed that the focus of her love was that agape the charity and so she didn't she didn't try to own bardia like orwell did so at this point uh by the end of chapter one she says the gods have stripped her down and now she just feels like they've ripped something out and there's a gaping hole with nothing to fill it um has she died yet i don't think so no She's Not just, yet, no. she's feeling some real sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> she's begin to enter the river, right? She's feeling the wetness and the mud. So, but, um, well, before, before we go to the break, I do want to hit on, uh, the moment in the temple when she's kind of looking at the two statues and she starts to see, you mentioned earlier, the thousand faces of Unget in this stone that's come out of the earth. And they've just finished this big ritual that they do every year. And she's, it still seems ridiculous to her. Um, but then this, this poor woman comes in who's clearly grieving something and makes this small sacrifice and sees her prostrate herself there uh, for a long time and then gets up and she, she asks her, you know, is this really helpful for you? Yeah. Almost <laughs> like she's, she's offended that she's praying to the ugly stone instead of the new statue of Unget that they made more in the Greek fashion. Yeah. Very beautiful. The most beautiful thing, you know, they've ever seen in that country. And the woman's response is that she couldn't pray to that one. It wouldn't understand her. Like the, the homeliness, the, um, almost the ugliness of the stone unget was that way so that it could interact with her. What it reminded Speak me. Speak her language. Exactly. What it reminded me of was the Oyerasu and Paralantra changing their forms in order to appear in a way that could honor the, ransom. well, Ransom and, and Tor and Tinadril in their shape and come down to their level. I'm not sure if Orwell really saw it there, but I guarantee this played a part in her coming around to realizing the gods are shrouded and in darkness for our sake. It allows us to approach them. Yeah. In our effort to find our real words. All right, we will take a break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So beginning in chapter three at this point, now that she's been through the temple, she's now had these two different experiences that's made this connection for her that she is Unget in the way that people have sacrificed themselves for her, uh, for her benefit. Um, what do you think Lewis is, is teaching us? Uh, and what is Orwell learning as she's making that 
recognition. Is it here where she goes to the river? To, I don't like, know. It, well, it, so, okay. After she realizes that she's Unget, she then sees her sword and she's going to commit suicide and realizes she may not have the strength really to do it and knows that that's probably not the best way to do it. So then she goes to the river and is going to drown herself. And it's the God who tells her not to do it, not to drown herself. Whoa. Cause when I was reading that, I, I thought she saw psyche coming down to the river and tying her feet. Like she's going to jump she in does. and Orwell's the one who's yelling to her, telling her to, she does not later. herself. When she's seen kind of her history, but she sees Psyche. Yeah. But when but she's she told psyche. not to do it. Exactly. <laughs> so she's told not to do it, which is so interesting, especially about suicide. It's, I mean, suicide's a tricky thing to talk about. Always is. And it's a serious thing to talk about. But to see it in the perspective here, where the God says to her, you must die before you die. And seeing that conversion as a death, that baptism. And that she, if she were to take her own life, she, she'd be acting like a God. It's not that death is this, the worst of all things. You know, like Hercules says in the, in the movie, there are worse things. That idea of dying before you die and seeing death as well, not only necessary for a mortal person, but it's not the worst thing and it's not the most momentous thing. And it's something that we, I, you know, Jesus sorrowed unto death and he did die. And to be in a place where I think that's the separation of our, of us, from our egos, from our self-consciousness, from our walls that we're always putting up the being so focused on ourselves that we never see anything or anybody else except in a way that it reflects our own image. It's going to feel like death. It's not an easy thing to overcome. And, uh, it's deeper than I know how to talk about word, the words, words, these babblings. I just feel like I, I don't have the way to put into words the feeling that this book has through words helped me at least grapple with a little bit. Did you see a connection between as she goes into the river and we talked about before this baptism and she has to, you know, let her feet lose the ground. She goes all the way under and then comes out. But then she's trampled by these, these great golden rams, right? Yeah. And I love the line where it says that they, they, there was no malice in the trampling, but just their divine, there seemed to be a joy and their, and something about their divine presence that trampled them, that trampled her. And it obviously think of the great divorce that just, she, she makes the comment that the line about their divine nature, their divine nature wounds and destroys perhaps by only being what it is. Yeah. And it reminded me of the hard grass and the great divorce that it's not hurting the ghosts with any malice. Right. But it's just more real than them. And it, it also made me think of a baptism by fire after the baptism by water. Mm -hmm. um, and what that baptism by fire means, we use that phrase all the time from the scriptures, but um, I thought in this instance, it was cool to apply the thought of actually engaging with a reality higher than yourself yeah being the the real baptism by fire because in order to really engage with it you had to go through that spiritual death first i think from orwell's perspective there's even an explanation for the destruction of the god of the mountain after psyche sees his face and after he appears to orwell there's this great flood and trees are falling down and even animals are dead in the flow of the flood and it seems almost like this cruelty from this tyrannous god but what if the mortality just can't help but be destroyed in its, his presence 
And I think you can take the God of the Old Testament that is all this destruction and seemingly um, a tyrannous type interaction, but maybe that's just what happens when we try to engage with that higher plane, right? It's like, I'm not sure if it's a clumsiness of the God's inability to in- interact with us, but I think with different perspectives, especially with that shift in seeing something greater and more solid, sharper, uh, more terrible, <laughs> burning, all of those things seem like destructive type qualities. So in this last vision where she's carried away to be, um, to lodge her complaint against the gods, um, and we, we have the eagle, which you mentioned before, reminded you of Farsight and of Schleckenstein-Salga. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what else did you see in that as she gets drawn into this uh, before a judge and the concourses, the numerous concourses? numberless concourses well i i saw um you know she's crossing a desert she's got a bowl of death which is actually the the water that will make unget beautiful and it seemed like shasta crossing the desert and there's a lot of comparison with just the tediousness you had the her seeing herself as somebody who's separating the the different grains in this um, this impossible task, but what made the dream terrible was that it didn't seem impossible, almost like she had to actually complete it. And a lot of our life, especially these journeys, you have John the Pilgrim going through, diving into this pool, and then making his way back through the landscape with a, but he has to fight a dragon and he has to. I think a lot of our lives, especially as disciples, is kind of the day-to-day drudgery. It might feel like, feel like crossing a desert. You might not feel like it's a, even an accomplishable task. And um, anyway, I do think it's interesting that this is not a place where she's going to be judged, but that where she's going to judge. She's the plaintiff. She comes and stands on the pillar and um, all of the dead are there. Everybody that, even Argon, the man that she killed, is there. I love that when she gets before this, um, I don't know, what would you call it? The word in my mind is tribunal. Yeah. But the, the, I like when she comes to this group to to read her book, that the book is so much shorter and it wasn't what she wrote. And yeah. at first she's going to, She's almost going to refuse to even read the book because it's not hers. Mm-hmm. But then she starts reading it, and it's actually the truth. And she recognizes that what this really was about was that the gods being so beautiful, it's worse that they're beautiful. Yeah. Because they're, te- they're tempting and luring us away and, and in fact, the best of us like Psyche and that Orwald doesn't get to own her. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hard truth of the fact that she would rather that Psyche was torn in pieces by a beast than be enjoying some type of joy, even if it's greater than the joy that Orwald could ever offer um, that didn't come from her. And... Um, and that eventually the gods have to tell her to stop, and she realizes she would have just kept going over and over and over. In fact, she had, she had been. Yeah. She had been just repeating the same thing over and over and over. Her, her whole complaint was not that sophisticated. In fact, when she was making her complaint, it was so obviously selfish. Yeah. In a way that she had used words and tried to abuse language and get into this word soup justification maybe very loquacious and eloquent in order to justify or at least maybe obscure that these selfish intentions were actually virtuous. It wasn't me trying to own things. It was me trying to, to sacrifice myself for them. And that is all of our vices. 
and we're lying to ourselves whenever we think that we are more virtuous than the gods. We have to blind ourselves to their virtue in order to think that we have any case against them. And so her book is so much smaller than she wants it to be. She wants her argument to be compelling. She wants to be able to use sophistry to show that everything that she did was right all along. And I see that in myself. I see that in arguments, even just simple social, cultural arguments. It's not that we were, um, it's not that we now know the truth, but we've always known the truth exactly the same way, right? We destroy statues because we want to pretend that history wasn't this process of learning. We should have always known. And I think a lot of this idea of, of pretending that you're so much better than the people who you're, who led to where you are neglecting that you do have so many so many blessings that the gods have been interacting with you. That's not her complaint. She tried to make it that the castle was invisible, even though she did see it. She tried to pretend that the gods never answered, but she couldn't deny that they did. It's just that they did in a way that made her feel like she wasn't in control and she didn't want that. We want control over other people. We want control over our own egos, who we are, how we present ourselves, how we think we're going to be saved, and we're willing to bring heaven down into hell with us just so we never have to yield and have divine assistance from something that is great and terrible. Word soup right there. Word if, you soup. Needed, if you needed an example. It is cold out. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then from there, you kick off chapter four, the complaint was the answer. She yeah. didn't need them to tell her anything, just hearing this truth. And I like that in her conversation with the fox, when he's apologizing to her, she's finally found after all of the blathering. And we're going to listen to this audio yeah. clip. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, we're going to listen. The audio clip that we have is from the very beginning of chapter four. So I think we'll play it and so we can have something to talk about. The complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. Lightly men talk of saying what they mean. Often when he was teaching me to write in Greek, the fox would say, Child, to say the very thing you really mean, the whole of it, nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. A glib saying, When the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the centre of your soul for years, which you have all that time idiot-like been saying over and over, you'll not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face, till we have faces? There it is. What does, there that, it is. what does that mean? I think in, as I look back at the times in my life when I feel like I've really prayed for more truth or more enlightenment to, to receive more from God. And then I look back at how I behave after those requests <laughs> um, and my level of obedience and faithfulness. Um, it, it This really resonates with me as far as, you know, as a lot of what I was saying or purporting to believe or whatever else is just babble. And that like, it's only in the, in an effort to do God's will. Am I actually slowly, hopefully hacking away at through the babble to try and get to that, the real truth and really know what my argument is, which can be my answer. And in t until then, um, are, are we not all beggars? Are we not all uh, sinners? And to approach God with an attitude of, of deserving him to show us his face without us doing in this short mortal life the simple things he's requested of us, um, it, 
makes me feel probably, I mean, it's the same ridiculousness that Orwell feels at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm kind of realizing this now as we're talking about it. I don't think I got that as we read it, but. Yeah, I had the image of my own face being, and obviously this is kind of ironic because look at me, make it about me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) My own face almost like inverted. Have you, you've been to Disneyland Haunted Mansion? No. Um, there's a not a Disneyland guy. <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was a designation. <laughs> um, Alex grew up what five blocks from Disneyland? <laughs> More, a little further than that. Okay. <laughs> um, there's this fun optical illusion that you can do with like a bust or statue that, um, if you make it inverted you can make it look like it's following you. And so in the line of the haunted mansion, there's these two busts at the end of one of the, the one of the parts of the line. And it looks haunted because these statue heads are like following you as you walk around. And, you know, it's, it's kind of fun. And then you go too far enough where you can see what's going on and the illusion just breaks. Right. And that's what I feel like my face is. I'm, my face is pointed in to me, to my own self. All of my actions are kind of self-serving or at least with an interpretation or an attempt to try to define myself by my interactions with other people. Yeah. I want to obey you, God, because I want to be the type of person that obeys. It's ego driven. It's identity driven. And that idea that, um, of the difference between the way something feels and the actual act, courage is not feeling brave. It's feeling scared and doing the thing you need to do anyway. And so much of the way we interpret what it means to be a disciple is thinking, oh, I want to feel faithful instead of I want to be act in faith. They're almost opposites. For me to say, I want to yield. I want to be the type of person that yields. Well, can I yield even that desire? And it do, it's not comfortable. It will be. It will require maybe a sorrow unto death. At least that's what it will feel like. Because service is hard. Being God's hands and the act by which yokes are made easy and burdens light is something that feels like a, the drudgery of crossing a desert and smell of hot self and smell of hot horse. And, and I know that every time that I come to that, that maybe it's a fork, I don't know how to take the other fork. I don't know how to do it. And the more that I fret and worry about whether I'm capable of doing it or did, have I achieved the, the identity points high enough to be able to be selfless, I feel almost like I'm working in the opposite direction. And I don't know if I need to feel it before I do it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor as myself And I guess that's how simple it is. It's really so simple that it will confound the wise because it's something that you can even observe a child do. Yeah, I just think of history and his daily bread. Yeah. And there's that, that to me is, is, uh, um, a moment of, of perfect humility or as close as you can get to it when you just, I mean, history knowing all of God's works and how he's worked with men um, still feels like the only thing you can subsist on is that daily sacrament and that daily bread. Yeah. So I, I know that that's what it means to have a face, to stop looking in and look out, to stop worrying about the me and consider the other, the thou or the you, right? And the, the you of all existence. If I stand on the pillar and say, I am, I am, I am in accusation, the truth might come back to me just as I hear that my own words and the silliness of me saying them. 
and God doesn't have to say anything. He just has to be because he is the I am. And so I'm trying to pop my face out and stop being a ghosty head. I hate to break it to you, but you can't. <laughs> I can't. You're right. So that's exactly, that's it. I can't. But if you let oh, him, man. but if you let him, <laughs> he'll help us die and do it for us. <laughs> that's right. Shoot. <laughs> Just turn. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So she then has this last vision where she goes into the pillar room mm-hmm. and she sees the different walls with the art and, and kind of reviews the, is this the myth of psyche? Yeah. And she's now seeing the different dreams and visions she's had, but from the perspective of seeing psyche, like we talked about going down to the river and her calling to her and telling her not to, to commit suicide or that psyche's on the floor organizing the grains mm-hmm. uh, and the ants are helping her. And, and psyche seems to be, she's not in pain. She's enjoying these tasks or problems and just seems to be um, godlike as she's experiencing these different things. Um, I, I, was, I was a little bit lost here because this culminates in her saying, you are psyche and, and Orwell is overjoyed to know that she bore and she asked the foxes and the fox says, yes, she, she helped bear some of the burden for psyche, mm-hmm. which now we're talking about real agape, right? We're talking about yeah. real love um, because her joy is just knowing that she was able to remove some of this burden from someone she loved. And so she was actually putting someone else's joy and happiness above her own. Um, but then how are they the same? I, I, I feel like I'm missing the, the big hitter. I think now that she's learned to step outside of her own narrative, she can see everything that she was jealous of Psyche for and that she gets to participate in as well. She gets to bear Psyche's burden as Psyche bears hers. And there's a very Christian type vicarious suffering and serving that makes both of their burdens light. And that's one of the ways that the gods can rewrite the past. I know that there's a lot more. It's a lot deeper than just the retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth, but Psyche, it means soul. And I think that this is what it means to have the soul of man, to be a talking beast, to be something more than just an animal, to have a bit of divinity in us given to us, not of our own merit, but because of Christ. And this is the process of us becoming one with him and both psyche and Orwell get to play Christ figures to each other because the gods have paid that price. They've uh, God has condescended to us in order to lift us into their sphere or their reality. And, you know, I don't have the words to say it, but reading these chapters, this book in its entirety, and especially book two has helped me feel grateful for the difficulty, for the adventure, for the ability to even be in the presence of the Rams that all it's enough just to pluck their wool off of the reeds. Yeah, that, that makes me think, you mentioned this before, where Orwell actually gets to be the Christ-like figure. And all of a sudden, the phrase, you are psyche, almost feels like a line to me, the reader. Yeah. You are psyche. And because of the atonement, you get to experience, you get to pluck the wool. You get to worry about arranging the seeds, but with with so much help, you get to go through all of this and have a savior there for you. That's gonna go read it again. <laughs> Let's go read it again. Yeah. Thank you for being in our book club. We hope you'll continue with us. Uh, next week, we will be 
uh, recording our audience participation episode. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair, M-T-N-A-I-R dot media. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. See you next week. See you next week.